Good evening. We are back in our Bible study on the life of Christ, our Wednesday night series. Going to be looking at a, a few different passages tonight. I had to make a decision to stop a little earlier than I would normally. I'm, I'm going to be expounding a little bit on just a few passages because we're getting to the point of the Sermon on the Mount, and that is not a topic I want to begin and not finish. So my goal tonight, looking through a few passages, looking at some of the events that took place in the life of Christ, next Wednesday, we're going to spend just one whole night talking about the 12 apostles. I had stated earlier when I spent an entire night on John the Baptist that it is not my goal to to have a a series on the people who followed, loved, and knew Christ. This is the life of Christ. And although the life of Christ does include other characters, even the Bible includes these other characters, they aren't the focus of his life. They're just side characters. And I I do want to do them justice, as the Word of God seems to give us some truths from their lives. I want to pull that truth out. But I feel pretty confident that we can address that in one night pull out the truths from the lives of these men and women, and then move on and get back to the life of Christ. So uh, next Wednesday, we're going to be looking at the men, the apostles. The Wednesday after that, we'll be looking at the Sermon on the Mount. And then as we get further into the text, you're going to find some women start coming into the scene uh, prominently. Of course, Mary and, uh, and Martha and others. And so we'll, at some point later on, spend the night on the women who uh, we find are prominent throughout the Gospels as well. I didn't want to have one night dealing with the men and women together. I wanted to you know, kind of separate them, give them both the, the time allotted that I feel would be necessary. But that is in the future. So tonight, we are still looking at the events surrounding Christ himself. So let's go ahead and begin in uh, Luke chapter 6 tonight. Luke chapter 6. And we are getting into probably some familiar territory as we discuss the Sabbath day. I had said to you last week that it seems some of the Gospels aren't necessarily putting the events in chronological order so much as they are putting events grouped together dealing with similar experiences or or similar conversations. And that's why you're going to find in some of these Gospels that a story is mentioned somewhere in Luke and Matthew. It's mentioned further along or, or closer to the beginning. And there's other stories in between those that don't match the series, chronological series, in the other Gospels. Let me say it this way. If you went to John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and if you were to list out the stories and the teachings of Christ in the order they are presented in the Gospel, and you were to do that for all four Gospels, you would find that in many locations, the stories and, and, and teachings are not in the same order. They don't happen in the same order in every gospel. And so I, last week I mentioned, don't let that bother you. The gospels never claim to be chronological. It, at that time, that wasn't a necessity of first century literature, it seems. I think that the gospels are less of a, here's what happened exactly as it happened, and more of a, Here's the life of Christ and what we can learn from his life. Not being chronological doesn't erase the inspiration or preservation of the events. It just means God didn't put the priority on the chronology of the events. He put the priority on the information we gain, the truth in and from the events and the lessons, uh, not so much the order of them. So 
I'm mentioning that again because you're going to start seeing as we go further along, we're jumping to Matthew in one chapter, and then we're going to be jumping like three chapters back for another event. And don't let that concern you. So we're in Luke chapter 6, beginning tonight in verse number 1. And it came to pass on the second Sabbath after the first that he went through the cornfields, and his disciples plucked the ears of corn and did eat, rubbing them in their hands. And certain of the Pharisees said unto them, Why do ye that which is not lawful to do on the Sabbath days? Now there's another passage we'll find where the Pharisees, man, they are just nitpicky. You can't make these guys happy. You know, I, I learned early on, and I am so grateful that this was a lesson I learned at a young age, that you are going to waste your energy and your time trying to make people who are natural skeptics, like every time you bring something up, they always have to have the opposite view. Even if they don't believe it, they're going to give the opposite view. That someone is always going to be opposed to who you are, what you do, and for various reasons. I learned early on there is really no point in trying to make them happy. Now, I'm not going to purposely make them unhappy. I'm not looking for ways to annoy them. I mean, honestly, it just happens through time. You will annoy people. You don't have to look for those opportunities. But I am not going to waste my energy. I'm not going to be anxious or discouraged when people are annoyed by me. And the more people you know, the more people will be annoyed by you. The more people you oversee in positions of leadership, the more they will be annoyed by you. The bigger ministry, the bigger job, the bigger opportunity, the more people will be annoyed with you. And so if you cannot handle people being annoyed with you, you probably don't want to seek positions of authority. It's inevitable. They're going to be annoyed by you. If you cannot handle people being annoyed by you, then you, you probably don't want to make your circle bigger than is necessary, at least your inner circle. You know, some people's inner circle is literally like one person, you know, their spouse or one best friend. Other can have an inner circle of 12. Christ had an inner circle of 12. So you know, an inner circle doesn't have to be one or two. But if, you, if, if you're concerned by the annoyance of others, you might want to keep it to the single digits. Christ made a big impact. Christ had crowds of people following him. And therefore, Christ had a lot of people annoyed with him for very minor things. Now, we look at them as minor. They didn't. And that is important for us to remember. Just because someone is annoyed with you and you think it's such a trivial matter doesn't mean it's trivial to them. They may take something small and in their head make it much bigger than it really is, or at least really is in your eyes. So although I wouldn't adjust what I do because people are annoyed, maybe I would adjust how I treat them. Maybe you would adjust what you say to them. If you, annoy, if, if you have a friend that's annoyed by a certain type of music, music, maybe you shouldn't play that music in the car. I'm not saying you have to worry about it. I'm not saying you have to change your music style, but... Maybe you just leave the radio off when they're in your car, right? So there's some minor adjustments you can make for their benefit. But Christ, when it comes to theology, he does not adjust theology for the benefit of others. 
Christ isn't going to change truth because people are annoyed by it. And I think that is a valuable lesson. Changing the radio station, turning it off, all right, no big deal. I love people, I, I, I love my friends, and I care about their comfort level more than I do my desire to listen to a song. But I'm not changing truth for my friends. I'm not changing truth for church family. And let me tell you, I'm not changing truth for my family. Multiple people I have known over the years who, who had a strong moral code as defined by Scripture on what was right or wrong, specifically dealing with human sexuality, uh, human morality, LGBTQ movement, you know, um, and what happens is their kids grow up, their kids come with a different point of view, either they themselves have chosen a different path, or they themselves, their kids, have friends who chose a different path. And I have found many times parents change their theology, adjusted their moral code, twisted truth for the sake of family. LGBTQ is wrong. Why? Because Scripture says so. And now that aunt so-and-so or uncle so-and-so is part of that group, well, maybe we were a little too hard. Well, maybe Scripture isn't as clear as we once thought it was. No, Scripture hasn't changed. You just are related to someone who's changed, so you're going to change Scripture for what reason? To not annoy them? So that they won't exit your life? So that they can feel better about the deception they are living in? Christ doesn't change truth. I love that. You know what he does do? clarifies it. That's a great thing. Clarifying truth, we should be doing that. Changing it, no. So Christ is going to clarify some truth for these Pharisees. We're going to find later, as I stated, they're going to call the, the apostles out for not washing their hands. Not, that's not now, but they are going to deal with that later. Uh, they, they're first here just upset that they're eating on the Sabbath day altogether. They're upset. And then when Christ deals with that, they, it's brought up again, by the way, many times, this idea of the Sabbath day and working on the Sabbath. But there will be another instant later where they'll, they'll ignore the Sabbath thing and start hounding them for how dare you eat without washing your hands. Every little thing seems to annoy these guys. You know what I've also noticed? When you are upset with, something, with someone, that is exactly what happens. Have you noticed that? When you're mad at your spouse, they now are pretty annoying. Like, you can put up with the noises they make and how they eat and, and how they drink their, their water, you know, like literally, you know, gulping really, really, you know what I'm talking about, right? You're on the opposite side of the house. You can hear them gulping the water down, right? And you're like, whatever, you know, well, it's just my spouse. When you're mad at them, it's like, will you stop that? Will you please drink like a normal person, right? You'll do that to your children. Your children, when everything's okay, you're like, oh, they're kids, oh, those kids. And when you're mad, I want quiet in the house, right? So when you're upset, when you're mad at someone, you are annoyed easily by them. You know what the Bible says? Love covers sins. Both the Old and New Testament refers to this idea, that when, book of Proverbs and New Testament, that when you love someone, you cover their sins. Let me explain that. That does not mean you 
hide their sins. It doesn't mean, you know, you help them get away with shoplifting, okay? That's not what it means by covering their sins. It means that their wrongs are forgiven by you. Their annoyances are overlooked. You don't hold on to these things and throw them back at them. You, You don't attack them with their wrongs. When you love them, you are able to move on with them, even through difficult and bad decisions. But the opposite is true as well. When you don't love them, their sins are not only uncovered, they are waved on a flag for all to see. They are brought up in conversations with random strangers. People you just met, you want to talk about your friends and and others who've annoyed you recently. And I've been in those conversations, literally just meeting someone, and they want to talk about other people. Like, I don't know you and I don't know these people. Why are we talking about them? Because they don't love them. They're annoyed by them. When you're mad at someone, you will call a friend to rat out your spouse. Some of you still call your mothers to rat out your spouse. Call your fathers to complain about your children. But when we love them, we don't hang our dirty laundry out on the front porch. We don't make a flag out of it and wave it for all to see. Well, the Pharisees obviously hate Christ, and therefore everything Christ does annoys them. If you find you are annoyed by people, I'm not saying it's the only reason. Do not mistake me. There are other reasons. Sometimes people are just literally annoying. I get that. If you find you are overly annoyed by people, specifically an individual, I would encourage you to evaluate the depth of your love for them. It might be you need to go a little deeper, and you'll find that annoyance starting to dissipate. All right, so we're talking about the Pharisees being really annoyed, upset with Christ, and they, they have a theological reason Christ is going to redefine truth for them. He's not going to redefine it as in change it. He's going to redefine from their deception to biblical theology because there's a difference. Redefining to meet your feelings is changing truth to match what you believe. Redefining to match Scripture is changing what you believe and feel to what is true. The Pharisees had a misconception and felt very strongly about their misconception, so much so that this became, it seems, the pivotal point for most, a lot of their theology of of righteousness. Like for the Jews, the standard of righteousness was circumcision and the adherence to the Sabbath. It seems were very pivotal, whereas Christ does not treat it nearly as uh, important as the Pharisees do. So what does he say in verse 3? Have ye not read so much as this? Now, you may not catch that. Christ is being a little facetious here. Guys, haven't you even read some of the most basic of stories? It's basically like Christ saying, do you forget the Sunday school stories that literally even children know? That's kind of what he's saying. Have you not read so much as this? One of the most well-known stories, what is that? David, when he was hungered, and they were with him, how he went into the house of God and did take and eat the showbread and gave also to them that were with him, which is not lawful to eat but for the priests alone. All right, here's the story. You may not know this story well, but the Pharisees certainly would have. When David was 
attacked by Saul. Remember, Saul threw the spear at David multiple times, trying to pin the guy to the wall. Saul was jealous of David's popularity. David finally uh, escaped Saul for, you might, well, you might say the last time where he ran from the palace. He was living in the palace for years. Ran away, and on the way, he stopped at uh, the, the house of God, the, 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 the temple. Uh, well, the temple wasn't built at that point, but the place where, where the sacrifices were made. Uh, he stopped there, and he asked the priest for the showbread. Let me explain what the showbread was. That was an offering that the priests made to God. They, they made the showbread, the priests made the showbread, showbread, set it on a table as an offering to God, and then the priests were allowed to eat it later. It didn't just get there and get stale and moldy. It was a, another one of many visual illustrations about the holiness of God and, and the separation of the Jews and, and, and other truths were being taught. Uh, you could say the house of God was almost like a museum of illustrations. The cups, the bread, the walls, the tapestries, these things would all point to theological, biblical truths, and even the food pointed to a truth. And so the, the priests would make this food on a regular basis, pointing to truth, but only the priests and their families were allowed to eat it. Well, David shows up and says, hey, we're hungry. We don't have any food. Can we have some of the showbread? And the priest is a little reluctant, but David wins them over, and the priest says, all right, here's, uh, this is all I've got. You know, I'll help you. David convinces him that uh, I'm, on, I'm on the king's business. Unfortunately, he lied uh, to the priest, and the priest believed him and said, well, if you're on the king's business and this is a good thing, then I'll let you have the showbread. Even though it's supposed to be for, for priests, I'll let you and your men eat it. And, and so Christ says, do you remember that story? How David ate the showbread unlawfully, but was not condemned for it. Now, there are other stories where there are people who do things that uh, shouldn't be done, but God allows it to happen. Verse 5, and he said unto them that the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. Now, I want to turn to one more gospel account. Let's go to the book of Mark, chapter 23. There's some text in Mark, chapter 23, that I want you to take a look at that's not mentioned in the book of Luke. I'm sorry, Mark, chapter 2, verse 23. I apologize. Yeah, that's way too far. Uh, wait, wait, Mark 23, wait a second. What version are we reading out of here? Mark, chapter 2. I promise you I'm not adding chapters. Okay, verse 23. Some of you are like, I got the wrong Bible. Okay, the Bible says, And it came to pass, he went through the cornfields on the Sabbath day. His disciples began as they went to pluck the ears of the corn. So this is the same story. Verse 25 talks about David. And then uh, I want to turn to verse number 26, how he went to the house of God in the days of Abiathar, and the high priest, and that's where he ate the bread. Verse 27, And he said unto them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. There are two truths that Christ is giving the Pharisees so that they can have a better understanding of what they thought they knew. Here's what they thought. They thought the Sabbath is holy. Why would they think that? Because God said so. Did he not? God said uh, the Sabbath is holy. You know, keep it, to keep it holy, right? Keep the Sabbath day to make it holy. So they knew that verse, they were familiar with that text, and their knowledge, you might say, of the Sabbath kind of ended there as far as the depth of that truth. 
Unfortunately, because the, their knowledge of that truth ended there, they actually added to even what Scripture said. There are accounts where some Pharisees stated that spitting on the ground was working on the Sabbath because the spittle from your mouth could germinate a seed in the ground and cause something to grow, and now you've planted something on the Sabbath. The Bible says nothing about spitting on the Sabbath, but when your knowledge of a truth is so shallow, it's easy, instead of going deep, to go out. And now you're adding things to the truth that aren't even there. Can I give you another example? There are those who only know, I think, limited Scripture when it comes to, um, you might say, modesty, and their, their knowledge of biblical modesty, I think, is so shallow that they've gone so far out that literally there are some who believe that a woman who wears pants in her own home would be against the Word of God. Uh, dare I go further? There are some who believe a woman shouldn't even wear pants to bed. Now, I don't know what they are thinking on that level. <laughs> but I can tell you this, they're very confused. And these are the same people who would claim a deep understanding of Scripture. I would deny that wholeheartedly. If you had a deep understanding of Scripture, we wouldn't be talking about what women wear to bed. And how do I know that? Because these same individuals, when interviewing someone to be a pastor at a church or a missionary will ask the man, what does your wife wear to bed? Because your answer will determine whether we hire you or whether we support you as a missionary. Wow. I could tell you that's not a deep question. That sure is a broad question. And that's the problem. If you don't go deep, you're going to go broad. Think of it like this. If the cup isn't a deep cup and you pour a lot of water in it, it can only spill out on the counter. <laughs> it can only go out. But if you've got a tall cup, then you can contain the water and go deep. And so Christ is trying to take them deeper than they've ever been with this truth. Because for them, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You know, keep, uh, uh, to, to, you know, basically don't work on the Sabbath day so the Sabbath day will remain holy. That's as far as they go. And they've added to it and even broadened it more than they should. So Christ is giving them two truths here. The first truth is, first of all, when it comes to laws, specifically this law of eating showbread, but this is just an illustration of laws in general, Christ is stating there are exceptions. Wait a second. There are exceptions to laws. There are exceptions to the rule. That doesn't sound like the God I serve. Exactly, because you haven't gone deep. First of all, you haven't gone deep enough in the Old Testament to truly understand all of the laws of the Old Testament. So let me do that for you. Not all of the laws in the Old Testament were moral laws. There were laws dealing with health. There were laws dealing with, with a remembrance of who God was and who the Jews were, circumcision being one of them. There were laws dealing with relationship, interpersonal relationships, and how you should treat your neighbor, and the fact that you shouldn't move your fence further into your neighbor's lawn and steal their property. Uh, there were laws dealing with tithing uh, and supporting the temple, and at that point, uh, supporting the priests and the Levites. These were not all moral laws on the same level as murdering someone or raping someone. And yet the Jews got to a point where they thought they were. They would have said, that killing someone and not keeping the Sabbath would be on the same boat. Eating pork and raping someone on the same, in the, on the same level. 
And a lot of Christians today, I think, have the same impression. All Old Testament laws are moral laws. And if you break them, you have broken a moral code. Look, my children can and do disobey me. There are not equal punishments for all acts of disobedience, even though it's disobedience. There are some acts of disobedience that have a more severe consequence because of what was attached to the disobedience, heart condition, or what they disobeyed in. God is a better father than I am. God has much more wisdom than I do. What would you call a parent who disciplined their child equally, severely, for every wrong? You'd call them abusive. And yet we think that's godly when God does it. God's not abusive. Yes, all sins put Christ on the cross. Yes, all sins uh, are a stain on the holiness of God. I'm not denying that. What I'm telling you is the Old Testament law wasn't all moral code. Some of the laws were given to the Jews for their benefit. And so when you disobeyed a law, yes, it was thumbing your nose at God, and therefore it's the rebellion of the heart that is the real issue, not the fact that they broke that law. Let me give you an example. My child says, can I have ice cream before dinner? And I say, no, because I want you to eat something healthy for dinner, not ice cream. My child sneaks the ice cream, and I walk in the kitchen, and there they are, you know, spoon in their mouth, caught in the act. The issue is not that they're spoiling their dinner. That's not the big sin there. I had told them no for their sake. Well, when they're getting punished, it's not, how dare you eat unhealthy? How dare you have ice cream before dinner? How dare you do this to your body? That is not the conversation we're going to have. It's going to be, you disobeyed me. On the other side, if my daughter says to me, my sister was mean to me, can I punch her? And I say, no, you can't. And I hear screaming and walk upstairs and she's punching her sister. You're now having two conversations. Disobedience and your actions are destructive on a different level than eating ice cream. The Old Testament is the same way. There are laws, extreme moral code, that do damage to you and to others when broken. There are laws that are purely for the benefit of the people God gave them to, to protect them from illnesses, to protect them from uh, surrounding nations, and breaking those laws were acts of rebellion, were acts of disobedience, and God dealt with the heart condition. But the law itself and the breaking of that particular law, maybe a health law, wasn't really the big deal. And David wasn't asking for the showbread out of an act of rebellion. It was an act of necessity. And so God says, I recognize the necessity there was no rebellion attached, and so breaking that law wasn't really that big of a deal. In fact, it wasn't a deal at all. David was fine to break that law because that law was supposed to be to a reminder to the people of the holiness of God and, and, and you know, the showbread and, and reflection of God. But if a man's going to starve to death, let him eat the showbread, right? Don't let them die of starvation on the ground staring at the showbread because it's a representation of God's holiness. Let the guy eat. This had been blasphemy to the Pharisees. 
I'm sure they were appalled to hear such a thing, that a law could be broken and God would be okay with that. Let me clarify. Again, that does not mean we can just break whatever law we want because not all laws are equal. But then he goes on to the second truth, and now he really hits it home to the Pharisees. Verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So he is attaching the Sabbath directly to a law that was for the benefit of the people. The Pharisees were under the impression that you kept the Sabbath holy by keeping the Sabbath. And by keeping the Sabbath holy, in some way it reflected the holiness of God. Well, remember this. God established a day of rest long before Abraham ever came on the scene. He did that with the six days of creation and the seventh day of rest. God had already established a pattern of, for the sake of your mental and physical health, take a day off. For the Jews, as a theocracy, God put it into law. Keep it. And keep it holy by not working on this day. But the true intention was always for your benefit. And so Christ is stating, I don't mind the disciples eating corn. They're hungry. And we're not going to go to someone's house and ask them to make food for us because then they would have to work. And we're not going to go to someone's house and take their food because they didn't prepare enough for everyone. They go hungry. We're going to eat. And we're going to eat today, and we're not going to wait till tomorrow. And it is you who have misunderstood the Scriptures. When we misunderstand the Scriptures, our belief system is affected. Not just our theology, but our theology affects our philosophy. When our theology is wrong, our philosophy will be wrong. And philosophy is that practical application of do's and don'ts, what you should do, what you shouldn't do, uh, where you should go, where you shouldn't go, what kind of person you should be, what kind of person you shouldn't be. I am not saying the Christian life is free game, do, be, and go wherever you want. I'm not saying that. I am saying if you don't understand truth of Scripture, your philosophy will prove that to be the case. And I find that most of the time those with the least amount of understanding of Scripture are often the ones who attack everyone else. It is those with a shallow understanding of Scripture who are only acting on what they were told by other humans, not on their own study of Scripture itself. Because the moment you try to say, well, what about this verse and this verse, they get very angry. They don't want to have that conversation with you. And if they do, they want to go to one part of one verse over and over again and just scream that one part. They don't want to look at Scripture as a whole. So, what are some truths here? Well, the practical truth is this. The Sabbath day is not a requirement for you to keep. First of all, you're not a Jew. Second of all, it's for your benefit. You have the, the need. God did not create you, it says. You know, God did not create you in another passage, it says, for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was created for you. Here it says made for man, but another passage talks about the creating of. And so... Take advantage of a day off, but it doesn't have to be the Sabbath day, which, by the way, is Saturday, not Sunday. Some Christians think they're so holy for taking Sunday off. You missed it by a day. Ah, that close. So close and yet so far. 
Now, if you're truly going to find holiness in the Sabbath day, at least choose the right day. Well, Pastor Russ, didn't you know? Sunday is the new Sabbath day. Really? Was that in Mark chapter 23? Because I didn't see that. You guys got that joke, right? No one's, come on. Okay. <laughs> it's late. I know. All right. <laughs> Nowhere in Scripture does it state that Sunday is the new Sabbath day. You know what it does say? It calls, it calls it the Lord's day. Sunday is where the church worships God, but it's not the new Sabbath day. You say, well, Pastor Russ, it was Saturday where they did worship God. And since we worship God on Sunday, it's automatically the new Sabbath. Well, I hate to burst your bubble, but they didn't worship God only on Saturday. They were, the Jews were bringing sacrifices on a daily basis, which is why the priests were sacrificing daily. In fact, part of the commandment, Old Testament law, was daily sacrifices by the priests. Okay, So God wasn't only worshipped one day out of the week. Not only that, the Jews were told they couldn't travel so far from their home on Saturday. So that would limit most of the nation of Israel from worshiping if they were outside that, that mileage limitation. They couldn't go to the tabernacle to worship. So, no, you're wrong. I'm sorry. It was, Saturday was not the church day for the Jews. Saturday was the day of rest for the Jews. And, of course, I'm sure a good Jew would have a time of worship, and they would spend time reading uh, the Torah with their family. But a good Jew would have done that every day, as Christ said to do. I'm sorry, God in the Old Testament said, uh, as you wake up, as you go to sleep throughout the day, read these things and teach these things. God was clear. Make it a daily thing, not a Saturday thing. It would have been one of other things they'd do on Saturday, including resting and just enjoying time with family. So when we chose Sunday as, a, as the Lord's Day to remind us of his resurrection on Sunday, the Sabbath day wasn't moved. And so if you really feel strongly about the Sabbath day, then keep Saturday, not Sunday. But also, there's no need. If you can, do it. And I recommend you have a day off, whether it's Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, whatever. And that's a good thing. But it's for your benefit you were not created to benefit the day off. Let's move on. We're going to talk now uh, about Jesus doing a miracle. Let's turn to Matthew. We haven't looked at Matthew yet tonight. So Matthew chapter 9, uh, chapter 12, excuse me. Matthew chapter 12, verse 9. In verse 9, And when he was departed thence, he went into their synagogue. And behold, there was a man which had his hand withered. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath days that they might accuse him? <laughs> Christ has already answered this question. They just won't let it go. You ever had that conversation? I mean, you give a clear answer. You've given all the facts. There can be no possibility of misunderstanding. And then you do something, and they ask the same question again, or they roll their eyes again and say, Really? And you're, you think, Really yourself? Like, we just had this conversation. I... I I am so amazed at the patience of our Lord with the foolishness of men, including myself, and so grateful for his patience. So we're having the same conversation about the Sabbath. It seems to be on the same day. There are sometimes in Scripture where passages are put together seeming to be the same day, but they're not. It's just because one verse or the next, you think they are. This one actually seems like it literally is the same day, it is a Sabbath day, and it does say when he departed thence, he went to their synagogue on a Sabbath day. So either it's two Sabbath days in the same general time period or the same day. I'm going to go with the same day. All right, so he goes in the synagogue on the Sabbath day right after uh, rebuking them for their misunderstanding about the Sabbath, and there's a man there with the withered hand. Now, he hasn't even healed the guy yet. 
right away, what do the Pharisees assume he's going to do? Heal the guy. You know what's amazing? Even the skeptics had more faith than a lot of Christians do today. They just knew, oh, great, there's a, there's a man that needs healing, and there's Christ. We just know he's going to heal him now. And we as Christians, we struggle with that. That's, that's funny how the enemies of God sometimes have more faith in his abilities than, than the children of God. God can. Now, I reckon, I agree, God doesn't always do the healing we would want, but God can. And the Pharisees knew that and just assumed that he would. Rightly so because he's going to. (laughs) And so he says, What man shall there be among you that have one sheep, and if it fall into a pit on the Sabbath day, will he not lay hold on it and lift it out? A very similar argument to the one about David's need, right? Basically, it's an argument of need. The need outweighs the law, specifically since this is not a law of morality. It's not a moral code. He's not saying... Uh, you know, murder someone if you really need to. That's not the same level. It's keeping the Sabbath. And so David had a need and was allowed. The shepherd has a need. And he's basically saying, all right, we're, we're gonna, I'm going to give you the same truth from a different angle. You ever done that as a parent? Like you describe something, the kid doesn't get it. You're like, all right, let me try this. So you tell a different story. You come at it from a different way, but it is the same truth. A great, a great teacher will do that, by the way. A poor teacher will just keep saying the same thing over and over and over again, hoping the kid will finally get it. What the kid will finally say is, I understand, just to get you to stop talking. Just so you'll stop saying the same sentence or telling the same story. They know the story. They just don't understand the concept. You telling the story five times doesn't change that fact. Christ is a great teacher. Same truth, different story, different angle. This time... He says, okay, if you were a shepherd and your sheep was in a hole, would you wait till Sunday to get them out? Well, the Pharisees might say, of course we would. I could actually see them thinking in their holiness the right things to let the sheep suffer. Even if it dies, at least it died for a good cause. I did the right thing. I could see them saying that. A shepherd would be like, "Uh, no, I'm going for the sheep. Verse 12, how much then is a man better than a sheep? Wherefore is it lawful, therefore it is lawful to do well on Sabbath days. Then saith he to the man, stretch forth thine hand. He stretched it forth, and it was restored whole like as the other. This withered hand, of course, in, in some form, uh, in some way uh, deformed, probably unusable, which would be obviously a practical problem, but in this culture, a spiritual one. I'll tell you why. From other passages of Scripture, we gather that the Jews automatically assumed if you had some kind of physical deformity, God hated you. (laughs) That if something was wrong with you, it was judgment upon you. We know that uh, specifically, and I'll tell you how, even from other passages, but from from one in particular, when uh, Jesus comes upon a blind man, we'll see this later in, in the Gospels, The disciples themselves, the apostles, who at that point should know better, say to Christ, who sinned, his mom or his dad? They just assume that there's only one reason this guy would have some kind of deformity, you know, blindness. He must have come from a wicked family. We know of another passage where it talks about the uh, uh, building falling on people. And some dying, and the question raised again, basically, what wrong was done? 
And so I have no doubt that this man was seen as a sinner, not for any actions, but for his appearance. And you know what's crazy? Something he couldn't even change. He was associated with sinners because of the way he was born. You say, we would never do that as Christians. I would hope not, but I wouldn't put it past 21st century Christians to treat others as sinners because of how they look. Well, it's different. I mean, they chose to have that hairstyle. They chose to put that tattoo on. They chose to dress like this. You know, the withered man didn't choose it, so, you know. Well, I still say we're on uh, thin ice, and we start lumping everyone together because of physical appearance. But I will say this. It wasn't too long ago, and I do believe the church has come a long ways in the last 80 years, but it was not long ago when the church did assume certain things about people purely because of skin color. The church did that. That was Christians. Not necessarily in my lifetime, I'm 38, but definitely in my parents' lifetime, for sure, which wasn't that long ago. So Christians aren't so far off from being uh, able to do what the Pharisees did, making assumptions about someone because of something they could not change, the withered hand. So Christ heals the man, and then verse 14, then the Pharisees went out and held a council. <laughs> they had a committee. What was the committee on? It wasn't on the color of the carpet. It was on how can we kill Christ? I mean, I don't know why you need a committee about that. I feel like the best conspiracies are one or two, but they're bringing a whole bunch of people into this conspiracy. They want to have a whole group of people talking about the best way to, verse 14, destroy him. And we're going to find multiple times Christ in the future passages is going to call him out and say, you want to kill me. And what are they going to say? You're crazy. You have a devil. No, we don't. Who told you that? <laughs> you know, if you're going to be that way, at least, at least own it. Don't try to hide who you are. But the Pharisees were pretty good at hiding who they were, were they not? Pharisees were pretty good at politics, which is basically what it was. They didn't want to openly talk about destroying Christ because they knew it would upset the people. That's politics. If you believe something that strongly, then just state it and, and let the, the dice fall where they may. But the Pharisees felt strongly about a truth, but you know what they felt stronger about? And these are people who in their preaching would have stated there is nothing more important than truth, nothing more important than the holiness of God. And yet they think Christ is a blasphemer, they think he's of the devil, they think he should be killed, and they think that and believe that very strongly. But they don't state that. They actually lie about it when in public. So that reveals a lot about the Pharisees. They would have claimed there's nothing more important than truth. But what did they actually believe? There is nothing more important than approval. Approval. That's a scary game to play. When I listen to messages, and I, I hope you understand something, oftentimes the stories and illustrations I give are not 
to attack pastors. I am one. I have a great love and respect for other pastors who, who serve God. I don't tell these stories to attack pastors. I tell them because that's what I know. I am a pastor, and I listen to messages, and I deal with pastors. So that's, that's my world. That's what I deal with. I, I'm not going to use doctors as illustrations very much because I'm not a doctor. <laughs> I'm not going to use illustrations about a tradesman. I'm not a tradesman. If I was, I would. <laughs> So because I'm a pastor and that's my circle, that's my life, that's what I know, that's usually my illustrations because that's, that's what I'm dealing with. So please don't think I'm belittling the calling of pastor. Having said that, it does break my heart to see so many pastors who have been sucked into the weakness of the Pharisees that they claim very strongly from the pulpit There is nothing more important than truth, but that cannot be the case because when I see how they make decisions, it is not based off on what is true. It is based off on what do other pastors in my circle believe and want and think. So many churches are led not by truth, but by a circle of opinions of pastors who aren't even attached to that church. They don't know it. The church members don't know it. But their leadership is making decisions because other pastors of churches literally in other states feel strongly about something. And so this pastor in Georgia will say, you know what? Bless God, we're going to keep hymnals. That's how it's going to be. Where is that in Scripture? Where is that truth? There is none. But you know what? His Texas pastor friend believes it strongly. And if the Georgia pastor gets rid of hymnals, what would the Texas pastor think? He wouldn't be his friend anymore. He wouldn't invite him over to preach. He would say, oh, that brother went liberal. That's too bad. I really thought more of him. I expected more of that brother. I thought he had it in him to stay the course. Got rid of hymnals. What's next? Drugs everywhere. Kids running in with weapons. Oh, that church is going to go downhill from here. And so the Georgian pastor in the back of his mind knows this. Now, I'm not, you know, I use hymnals because it's a light issue. Hopefully, it's, no one in here is overly aggressive about hymnals, okay? It's a light issue, but for some it's not. And I don't understand why it would be such a severe issue because there's no truth in the Bible attached to that. There can only be opinions attached to it. And I guarantee you, it's not just the opinion of that pastor. I guarantee you, it's a shared opinion with other pastors, and he doesn't want to lose popularity, friendships, opportunities for conferences and preaching, approval. He doesn't want to lose approval. And so he'll keep the hymns. Now, I'm not saying the song hymns. I'm saying the hymn books. Look, if you keep the hymn books because your people love hymn books, great. If you keep the hymn books because a pastor in Texas will be upset with you, what's wrong with you? And so approval is the motivator for so many spiritual leaders. By the way, it is for me too. Approval of God. And that's the difference. I'm not saying we shouldn't seek approval. I'm saying you're looking for it from the wrong people. Look for approval from God. And it is so freeing as a Christian to say, what will I do that gains God's approval? That I will do. And that I will stand on. And that I will not budge from because of God's approval. 
I don't care about the approval of spiritual leaders in other states, cities, communities, buildings. I care about your approval only to the level that allows me to minister to you in healthy ways. I do not care about your approval enough to be controlled by it. I do care enough about it to consider it so that you and I can have a healthy relationship. If I, if I cared nothing about your approval, you know, that's going to kill our relationship. There has to be some level, right? But not a controlling level, a caring level. The controlling level is specifically for God. God controls me with his approval. You do not. And as far as outside this church, I don't care at all about the approval of other pastors, not even on a caring level, I don't care. If they're in this church, I would because I would have a relationship and would want to connect with them. Outside this church, I don't care. They can be upset with me. They can hate me. They can think I'm a heretic. They could think this church is going down the twos because I'm not wearing a tie tonight or a suit coat. And some Wednesdays, uh, bless God, I wear jeans. I mean, they, I don't care if they disapprove of that. Now, I've got to be honest with you. If you, this church cared, and if multiple candidates say, Pastor Russ, it really bothers me that you wear jeans on Wednesday. We would have a conversation. If it still really bothered multiple members, you know what? I'd probably stop wearing jeans for your sake. Because... For me, it's not a theological issue. I can adjust, and if it bothered you that much, I'll make the adjustment. I'm not going to adjust if a pastor calls me and says, Brother, I was watching your Facebook. You were wearing jeans Wednesday. I would say, Who are you? Well, you know, i got a big church in Texas. That is great. Um, don't care. And we would either talk about something else or hang up. And I, I, I don't see that conversation going very far or very well. All right, let's move on. The last conversation tonight we're going to look, uh, let's go back to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3 and verse 13. Okay, Mark 3 verse 13. <clears throat> Jesus Christ is going to go off to a distant location, kind of segregate himself, separate himself, verse 13, into a mountain and calleth unto them, uh, unto him whom he could or would, and they came unto him. Now, in another passage, one of the other Gospels, we're told he prays. Before he chooses the apostles, there is some prayer time. So let me kind of break this down for you. Major decision Christ is making here. By the way, this is God who knows the future, has ordained the future. What's, what is going on? Why does he even need to think about it? He knew it was going to happen. He knew who he was going to choose. Much of what Christ does is a pattern set for us. I think more for our need than for his. Yes, Christ was a man at this point in the sense of he is completely 100% God, but in the body of a man and had you know, human emotions and human tiredness. I'm not denying that. But those things did not eliminate his godly foreknowledge. So why is he praying and distancing himself before choosing? To show us how it's done. As a math teacher, I have the privilege of bringing difficult concepts to, to students who have no clue what I'm talking about, literally like glazed eyes. I'll, I'll be teaching math sometimes, and there are literally mouth open. I mean, like, you know, in a cartoon, it's reality. Like, their mouths are open. 
they're like barely, you know, shallow breaths, and they're literally staring like, are you with me? You're like, are you still there? What's going on? I have to stop, get their attention, redirect, you know, come from a different angle. And when I teach math, I can look at a problem, especially since I teach it, I know it. I can look at the problem in my head, come to the solution. I don't need to do all the steps. You know why I do the steps? For the sake of those I'm teaching. I show them the steps to take to get to the solution. The steps aren't for my benefit. Let me be quite honest. The class is not for my benefit, man. It's for them. Christ didn't come to earth for his benefit. It was a class he taught for the benefit of others. So, of course, he's going to show the steps. Because what good is the class if all it was, here's the problem, here's the solution. Well, how'd you get there? Well, that's none of your business. No, here's how you get here. This is a step Christ is giving us for our benefit. So this passage talks about getting away. Another passage includes the idea of praying. Those are valuable steps. When making a major decision, separate yourself from the busyness, the loudness, the anxieties of the world around you and pray about the major decisions. If God's going to, how much more should we? After his time of separation, goes into a mountain. After his time of prayer, what does he do? He, verse 14, ordained 12, that they should be with him, and that he might send them forth to preach, and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out devils. Simon, he surnamed Peter. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, he surnamed them uh, Boanerges, which is the sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanite. Oh, that's interesting. Simon, the Canaanite. Hmm. We'll get to that later. Judas Iscariot, which also betrayed him, and they went into a house. All right, we're ending where I started. I told you that for sake of time, I did not want to start this conversation and end it. We will spend an entire Bible study next Wednesday, an entire night, on just the 12 disciples. The good, the bad, and the ugly. It will only be a one-night series, you might say mini-series, of the life of Christ, and then we're done with the apostles. Any other information outside of that will only be attached to conversations with Christ. We're not going to do another character study on any of the disciples. And then I told you after that, the Wednesday following, we will uh, get into the Sermon on the Mount and spend one Wednesday, and that's going to be a much harder, by the way, but we'll do it, one Wednesday on the Sermon on the Mount, and then later in the series, we will uh, have an entire night spent on the women that knew and loved Christ and who are brought into uh, the Gospels on a prominent level. So, the truths from Christ choosing the Twelve, we will, I will say this, as I've already stated, the, the steps taken, distancing himself, having a time to consider and pray, but also he chose 12 men, and one of them, Christ's own words, was a devil. A lot to ponder there that God would choose Judas as an apostle. You say, well, he needed to to betray Christ, sure. He didn't have to be an apostle. Well, how would he have known where Christ was going? If you read the Gospels, they were disciples, non-apostle followers. In fact, 
the book of Acts alludes to a hundred who seemed to have been a crowd who pretty much stayed with him most of his ministry. So dozens, if not over a hundred followers throughout most, if not all of his ministry, they also would have known the goings and comings of Christ. Judas could have remained a follower of Christ and still accomplished, you might say, the task that he chose for himself. He didn't have to be an apostle, which begs the question, why? Why would Christ choose Judas to be an apostle if the same result could have been achieved with Judas being just a disciple or follower of Christ? Hopefully, that question will bring you back next Wednesday. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for those tonight listening online and here in the building. I pray that you would help us to gain a deeper knowledge of you, of truth, so that we can be a better follower of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.